Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So we start with the petition drive up in Whistler calling for proof of vaccination to use the ski lifts on the mountain. And this petition gaining steam in Whistler, a lot of support. My guest is John Koenig. He started the petition. He's a Whistler resident. John, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, it's good to be here, Mike. Okay, John, let's talk about this issue right now. So the rules in Whistler right now is you have to show proof of vaccination to go into a restaurant in the resort, right? But you don't have to show your vaccine card to use the lifts, which are those largely, usually those enclosed gondolas, correct? Yes, that, that, that's the current um, protocols. Um, all yeah. the restaurants, bars, patios, Will, and even fast, um, quick service restaurants will require a vaccine certificate. But uh, the most um, enclosed space are the gondolas, which won't yeah. require a vaccine certificate. Yeah, what do you think of that? I don't, I don't think it's a good idea at all. Um, you know, I, maybe I should describe to your listeners what riding in a, a gondola is like in the winter. It's not sure. like the summer. It's not like the summer where you wander in casually, go up with your own group. There's never any pressure or lineups. In the winter, it's uh, after a big dump. Uh, there's hundreds of people lined up in corrals. Um, singles take every available space, so the gondolas are full, and you can measure, measure phys- physical distancing by inches, not feet. So it's a very yeah. tight, poorly ventilated space. Right, and you got a lot of people coughing and breathing heavily in there and jostling around, putting on ski boots and stuff. So, like, how would you describe that as kind of like a, a COVID Petri dish? Or, like, what is you know, your concern? You could easily catch COVID in there if somebody's got COVID in a gondola. Right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the, there is a requirement for face coverings, as they call it. But those, those will be mo- mostly just uh, neck tubes and scarves and... Uh, they don't offer any protection at all, really. And also, a lot of people eat and drink on gondolas. So, yeah. obviously, those those tubes will come down <laughs> when yeah. they do that. Okay, speaking of John Koenig, he started the petition to, to require the vaccine card for the gondolas, the ski lifts, and Whistler. How many, peti- how many signatures on your petition so far? We have 3,850 right now. Okay. And uh, a lot of interesting comments in the comments section. I mean, many want to protect their under 12 unvaccinated children and grandchildren from riding in gondolas with the unvaccinated adults. We have seniors that are very concerned because they feel vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, there's some people with immune compromised uh, situations or long-term illnesses such as cancer treatments. They're very concerned. And, uh, you know, the uh, other concern that this will lead to another early mountain closure and yeah. that would be devastating to the, the local economy. Yeah, right, because we saw that last year, right? We saw some bad COVID outbreaks in Whistler, and didn't they shut the whole resort down at one point? Yes, we've been yeah. shut early for two years now, but last wow. year, you know, we were wearing face coverings and lineups. We were on, on lifts and gondolas, and we were only riding with our, our, our family members or alone, and Delta variant wasn't here yet, and still we had a major outbreak. Yeah, and okay. Big, yeah. 
Dr. Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry, John was asked about this the other day. She was asked about your petition and the concerns around uh, no vaccine requirement to ride the gondolas. Let me play a short clip of what she had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. So here's Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking just the other day on this. The risk is less when you're outside. We know that in smaller groups and when you're wearing uh, masks and goggles, etc. So uh, for a short period of time on a gondola, you know, the risk is probably not the same as if you're sitting down inside without a mask on, um, having a drink with a group of people. Okay, so she doesn't seem too worried about people on the gondola. What do you think of what she had to say there? Well, for one thing, um, they're not a few minutes. The Whistler Village gondola ride to the top is 25 minutes. In storming conditions, often gondolas stop, um, or in high winds, they're forced to go slow. So it's more than a few minutes. Um, We're just looking for something consistent and science-based because gyms, you know, fitness uh, studios, racket sports, indoor racket sports, dance classes, bars, restaurants, all have to have a vaccine passport. And yet the smallest space, the tightest space, we don't. (laughs) Right. Is there any any suggestion by the resort that people will only be allowed to use the gondolas in in like a family bubble or something? Because I I heard that suggestion that maybe they would limit the people going onto the gondolas to sort of reduce the spread of risk. Like, but, you know, so I heard that. But then I also took a look at the press release that came out from Vail Resorts, which owns Whistler, and it said the uh, gondolas will operate at normal capacity this year, right? Yes, last year we did... um only uh, go up with her own bubble, usually a family member or alone. Yeah. Um, that's uh, not the not the case this year. Full capacity means they fill them up in the morning, and uh, you, we have single lineups where singles jump in with, when there's any empty seats. So at this point, there is no plan for that. Um, that's you know that's what they're saying. Last year, uh, operating like at partial capacity. It did create very long lineups in the valley, uh, sometimes an hour and a half. And we, we don't want to see that again. And that's why we like to see everybody on the mountain vaccinated. Okay, what has the resort, has the resort made any comment about this at all? Like their base, Whistler Blackcomb is owned by a big American corporation now, right? Yes, it's owned by Vail Resorts, who yeah. has 37 resorts. 33 of them are in the United States, only one in Canada. And this policy was announced from Colorado. Um, a very little of the local, uh, very few decisions get made locally here. Yeah. Does that concern you? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. much so. I'm sure it does. Like you mentioned that the, the petition has got a comment section there. And I took a look at some of the comments there on the, on the pe- online petition. And it was interesting to see some international people weighing in as well. Like, Americans who hope to travel to Whistler to go skiing this winter, even even people from Europe, England. And in order for them to get into the country at all, they would be required to be double vaccinated to get into Canada. So, you know, some of the comments were interesting saying like, well, you know, I'm coming to Whistler. I'm going to be vaccinated myself. I'm kind of surprised that they would allow unvaccinated people onto the gondolas. You know, what do you think? What yeah, are you, hear- what are you well, hearing on that in that regard? Well, and also uh, our new prime minister says you'll have to have a vaccine passport to get on a domestic plane or yeah. a, a bus or a train at center provincial. So, uh, you know, it's I, I think it's all, all the long haul destination people that come here would be 
much more comfortable if everybody's vaccinated. So I think this is also not only a good public safety decision, but it's also good for business if we have full vaccination required. Okay, well, you know, this is big business. When you're talking Whistler Blackcomb, we're talking millions of dollars on the line with with a ski season looming. Like, I wonder if Vail Resorts, the corporate owners of Whistler Blackcomb, are thinking bottom line here, that if they bring in, uh, if they want to bring in a vaccine card requirement to use the ski lifts, Maybe that'll be bad for business. Fewer customers will show up. Well, you know, I don't think they would lose um, that many. Um, I don't think there are that many people that are unvaccinated. If you look at British Columbia, it's over 80 uh, percent of the general po- of the sorry, the eligible population is vaccinated. Yeah. But, you know, if we if we are forced into another closure, our our community, our small businesses and most of our jobs are dependent on what's for black home staying open. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it would be a terrible catastrophe if we have to shut early again because of this policy. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, too, John, like when you think about that, you have to show a vaccine card in order to use a restaurant on the on the hill. What about if someone wants to use the bathroom? OK, so let's say someone is unvaccinated. They don't have the B.C. vaccine card. They're allowed to go on the lifts. But now they want to duck into one of the restaurants or something to use the bathroom. How's that going to work? Are they going to let people in to use the facilities in there? Or? Well, you know, one would think they would have to allow them to come in to uh, use the facilities. But yeah. you can imagine how complicated that would be. These are, uh, these are big restaurant cafeterias with multiple entrances, multiple entrances even into the toilet. So how many staff or security people are, are going to have to be employed to make sure that the unvaccinated aren't mingling in the restaurant area with the, the vaccinated. Um, this is going to be a, a logistical nightmare. And also, I, I think it's just going to uh, negatively impact your your day on the mountain with all this uh, checking. And, you know, it won't feel like a nice free day on the mountain with security checks at every restaurant and patio yeah. and stuff. Right. Okay. So you're saying like just make it re- just make it mandatory for everybody going into the resort. Period. Yes. Make, make, make it easy. A lot easier. A lot more okay. pleasurable. Okay, John. Thanks for coming on to and, talk about it today. Can I just plug yeah. our our, our uh, petition? Is at change.org/slash/whistlerblackcomb-vaccine-certificates. John, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Anti-vax protests are quite common outside the B.C. legislature these days. They happen quite frequently. It seems like a couple of times a week. There's usually a protest rally, anti-vax protest rally on the front lawn of the legislature. And whenever the anti-vax protesters show up, uh, so does my next guest. Her name is Nell Saba, and she makes a point of going down there and doing her own one-woman counter protest with her own sign and i think that takes a lot of guts and courage to do it now thank you for coming on today of course i appreciate it a lot so now i'm taking a look at your social media you've posted some videos and photos from your your one person uh protest camp rallies there and i see you holding up one sign says vaccines save lives ignorance kills yeah. and and that's got okay so that's a great sign what what do these people do? Like these anti-vaxxers, when you show up with and you do your counter-protest, how do they react to you? Well, the most common response is that I must be getting paid mm. by someone. Um, a lot of them are respectful, but a lot of them 
get pretty angry about it. Yeah, yeah, they do. And in fact, uh, let me play a short video here, some short audio now of one of these uh, protesters hassling you here. Have a listen. We got that audio. Vaccines kill people. Go away. Satan, you are Satan. Vaccines kill people and are killing people all over the world. Okay, now they, she called you Satan. Yeah, I love that uh, lady. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, why do you do this? I mean, you're going down there, you're taking a lot of abuse there. How come you do that? Um, um, I'd like to say it's for, like, the most honorable reasons, but I don't think I'm there to change anyone's mind. I guess I'm just there, like, kind of to troll them a little bit. I can't help it. But also just because I think people like to their site getting represented it probably makes them feel a lot less negative about the vaccine or the anti-vaccine rally right and do you get support too like i can see these anti-vaxxers yeah Yeah. what do people say to you who support you when they walk by and they see you with your sign a lot of people say thank you for being here or i really like your sign and i had one woman stand with me for a couple protests so yeah i get a lot of support and every time someone doesn't honk, I'm assuming they're probably not an anti-vaxxer. So. Okay. okay. And uh, this is, uh, I, I worry a little bit for you a bit because some of the people in these crowds can be a little unhinged and can be aggressive. Yeah. I mean, is it? have you ever felt like, you know, your safety was in jeopardy at all down there? Um, I did have someone throw coffee at me. Oh. Um, and someone, the last protest, who con- is convinced that I've, punched him in the face i don't remember doing that but he did threaten to kill me um but i i don't know i just i guess i feel a little bit invincible i don't maybe that's not healthy but I'm okay, just so you're, okay we just we got 30 seconds now so you're going oh, yeah. to, whenever the so whenever these va- anti-vax protesters show up you're going to continue to show up in two Is as that right? much as i can yeah okay all right. Well, you, you get your very courageous young woman. Thank you very much oh, for coming you. on to talk about it. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest high tech tool police are using now to catch speeders. Police in Delta recently charged a driver with excessive speeding after using a drone to spot and track them on Tawasan First Nation land along Highway 17. I took a look at some of the video here released by the Delta Police Department. It is like crystal clear, wide-angle zoom photography on with this drone. Amazing. Uh, they can zoom right in on a license plate. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Chris Lakoff, Public Affairs Manager at the Delta Police Department. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, this is very, very interesting. Now, in the case where a driver was actually charged, so what went down there? How was this drone used? Yeah, so a lot of people had questions about how we're using this technology. And really, it's it's quite like uh, how police um, target distracted driving sometimes on those kind of initiatives. So there'll be a drone operator. Uh, he'll be, he or she will be uh, in place. We're trying to spot street racers. Uh, they'll be able to follow the drone safely until the vehicle uh, pulls over perhaps onto a side street or in this case like a parking lot by the mall there. Uh, 
And then another officer who is in position, ready to follow, uh, can just safely approach the vehicle. There's no chance then it's going to speed off. And uh, the officer with the drone has actually been following the vehicle all along, so uh, has continuity of the driver, so the police are able to issue the ticket in that case. Okay, that's amazing. Now, can the drone actually measure the speed of the vehicle? No, that's the... That's the uh, officer who's actually um, uh, noted it uh, probably at the first defense level, then flags that for the officer who is um, uh, using the drone to follow the vehicle. Because it's very easy. You can see how wide an area we can cover. Yeah. Uh, so it's very easy for the drone operator to um, uh, zoom in to a specific area where an officer has flagged someone saying, in this case, going 157 kilometers an hour in an 80-kilometer zone. Right. So with the officer on the ground, would that officer have like a radar gun or something to measure Correct. the speed of the vehicle? I see. Yes. Okay. So yes. so the drone is used to sort of give the officer on the ground sort of a heads up, like, okay, this speeder is heading your way. Exactly. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And okay. it's safe for everyone then, well, hopefully, uh, we hope that nothing happens before the driver pulls us over because it is not safe to be traveling at those kind of speeds on an 80 kilometer an hour uh, road. Right. So this is like safer than a high-speed chase. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. Okay. So in this case, now you mentioned that you're trying to target street racers, right? Like mm. is th- these drones, are they, is that what they're exclusively being used for, just to go after street racers? Or could you just go after sort of anybody speeding in Delta? <laughs> we did in this occasion uh, specifically want to target street racing. It is a concern that been brought forward by our residents a number of times. And it's really hard because uh, typically we'll get a couple calls in, but by the time police get to the area, uh, oftentimes the street racers might be gone. Uh, we have a lot of um, uh, rural land, farmland in this area, so I, uh, the cars can disperse quite readily. So we yeah. wanted to do a little bit of proactive work there. But to get back to your question, uh, no, the drones were actually brought in um, uh, just actually to do a few other um, uh, tools for us. For example, we've used them in search and rescue efforts uh, to find uh, lost persons uh, for situational awareness. We've also done uh, photography with them when there's a collision, and we want to make sure that we collect all the evidence we can um, without uh, keeping the road locked down too long. Uh, And even for situational awareness, um, damage assessment, if if there's some sort of disaster and it's not safe for people to go in, the drone can go in first. There's a range of uses we can uh, use them for. No, oh, I bet there is. And when you when you nab this uh, street racer on Highway 17, mm-hmm. like I no- I noted that was on Tawasan First Nations land. Like, is that particular stretch of highway? Is there a lot of street racing going on there? So, it, it can happen occasionally uh, on the way to the ferry, for example, from the tunnel, uh, or even behind uh, the mall there on the First Nations land. There are a couple areas uh, we oh. do patrol this, so it is an area that we wanted to to strategically target, and it's something we're going to be doing again and not necessarily providing a heads-up to uh, drivers before that happens. Okay, no warning. No warning to these street <laughs> racers. Okay. No. All right. Okay, Chris, thank you for coming on to talk about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, you bet. I appreciate it. Chris Lakoff there from the Delta Police Department. Let's check in with Kyla Lee now. Kyla is a lawyer at Acumen Law. She specializes in driving law. Hi, Kyla. 
Hello, thank you for having me. Okay, this is the first time I have heard of a drone being used by police to catch speeders. In this case, they're saying they're going after street racers. What do you think about this from a sort of a legal perspective? I don't like it. I, I don't like the idea that people are being policed by robots. I don't like the idea that there wasn't really any notice about this going out to individuals to allow them to change their behavior or respond to this. They took a, a public safety tool that they purchased, and they're now using it essentially to generate revenue for the municipality, for the government, and for the police force. Well, are they generating revenue, or are they just trying to keep the public safe? Like, these street racers can be dangerous, right? They can be dangerous, yeah. but there are other methods that they can use to stop street street racers, ones that we've had for a long time, like spike belts, uh, where they see somebody heading down the highway and they can't stop them. They could have uh, officers positioned ahead who can lay down a spike belt. Uh, they could use uh, targeted stops where they make observations at one point and have officers positioned ahead to stop the drivers um, without having to engage in a high-speed pursuit down the highway. There are all sorts of enforcement methods that are accepted and used all across BC and all across the world that don't involve the use of drone technology. Okay, what is it about the drone technology that you find like troublesome? Because I know that police in the past have used uh, aircraft to catch speeders, right? Like I've seen signs on the highway warning drivers, uh, speed traffic, con uh, speed control by aircraft. Uh, have you ever defended uh, someone who got a ticket because they were clocked speeding from a plane? I've had either two or three cases in my entire career of somebody who got a ticket after having their speed measured by a plane. Um, and the difficulty with it has always been proving the reliability of, of the speed allegation. Now, these drones apparently aren't doing the measurement of the speed. Um, right. So that, you know, that takes that element away. But there's still difficult cases to prove. And, and you know, it's questionable whether these methods are, are acceptable. Right. But is it is it legal, though? Like, I wonder, you know, you heard the officer explain there, well, okay, the drones are used to sort of identify these speeders. It doesn't measure the speed. There's a police officer on the ground using radar equipment to actually measure the speed. So I wonder, like, if you were defending someone in court on this, would the, the use of the drone be in, in any way contested in court? Or do you think that's legit police method? Well, I mean, I would certainly contest it in court. The admissibility yeah. of video evidence depends upon somebody authenticating the video. Um, if the video is being captured on a drone, uh, the authentication process might be very difficult. Um, in addition, there's also the fact that the Motor Vehicle Act already allows officers to ticket the owner of a vehicle um, and potentially to impound the vehicle in a street racing incident, even if they don't know who the driver is. So it's not necessary to have a drone to track the individual to give them a ticket. They can give it to the owner based on the license plate. They can impound the car based on the license plate. Okay, so you think that police should not be using these drones for traffic enforcement then, period? Yes. Right. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about high-tech speed enforcement. The Delta Police Department recently using an aerial drone to catch a street racer. They say that they nabbed this street racer going 156, uh, 157 clicks an hour in an 80-kilometer-an-hour zone. Got a ticket of 483 bucks, towing fees, three demerit points, and a seven-day impoundment of the vehicle. Uh, police credit the use of the drone for catching this speeder. My guest, Kyla Lee, doesn't thinks the use of the drone is going too far. What do you think? Doug in Surrey on the open line. Hi. Hello, Mike. Hello, Kyla. I live across from King George Skytrain, and it's like um, you can hear people revving up their engines at 100 Avenue, and they got the uh, 96 light across from Tim Hortons and Surrey Memorial. They passed through 98, 
uh, it's, you'd think the uh, NHRA was running the Winter Nationals down there at uh, <laughs> 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. It's like an open season. There's all kinds of no-signal lane changes. They don't even slow down. And if they're cutting a red, they can cut it. There's nobody around. The uh, RCMP is overstretched, and uh, they can't cover everything. Anything that holds these bunch of morons in control, I'm in favor of. Okay, Kyla, what do you say to that? The problem is that drone enforcement doesn't hold people in control. It doesn't stop them from speeding until, you know, quite a distance away. And it also doesn't provide that visual cue to people when they see, you know, you see police officers doing speed enforcement. You're definitely checking your speed. You're slowing down. You're thinking about it for the rest of your drive. That's not happening if you're being followed by a drone that you don't even know about. Maybe they should, maybe the police should put up a warning sign saying, you know, this area is patrolled by drones, speed enforcement by drone. Maybe people would slow down. I would be interested to see the, you know, changes in speed behavior after those signs went up, because that might be actually an effective method of changing behavior. Okay, Mark on the line in Delta. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mike. I just want to say that I live across the highway from the Tawasson Mills Mall, and uh, from 52nd all the way down to Sailor Sea, it's an absolute nightmare. Drag, drag racing going on there constantly. People doing donuts and stuff in the mall parking lot. Whatever they can use, I'm in favor of it. There's some major traffic accidents at Sailor Sea and 52nd on the way to the ferry terminal as well. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, and it sounds like this is where the Delta police were using that drone right in that area. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a problem area for sure. Lots of calls here. Tom in Surrey. Hi, Tom. Hi, how you guys doing? Good. Go ahead. You know, I think wherever the police can use tactics which de-escalate a situation, deal with it once the person has slowed down, makes sense. I think Kyla lost all credibility when she threw out, throw spike belts down instead of a, a drone approach. This isn't TV or the movies, Kyla. You think a spike belt is going to be the solution? I know you said it's only one, but my God, that really, you just blew it right there. A spike belt. That's really smart. Okay, Kyla, what do you say about that? Police use spike belts in speed enforcement and driving enforcement all the time. It's incredibly common. Including for, like, for street racing? Yep, absolutely. Anything where there's excessive speeding, uh, they can use the spike belt because there's a concern that uh, the driving behavior is dangerous and that it is criminal as a result. Yeah, so wouldn't, it, I, wouldn't the drone, though, be a lot less invasive or less risky than a the spike drone- belt? might be lo- a lot less invasive or less risky, but it allows the driver to continue driving in the manner that they're doing, yeah, whereas yeah. the spike belt stops the risk to the public. Okay, keep phoning me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Leslie in Coquitlam, hi. Hi there. My first question, of course, is, is what does this drone cost? And And the rest of it is, the police are always buying toys when, when they just don't police people that can't drive properly. I, was, I drove five kilometers yesterday down to the warehouse, and I came across five, ten people driving on my side of the road on residential streets because they don't know how big their cars are. You know, they, the cops are into these big-budget toys, which... You know, the previous caller gave Kyla a hard time. The cops are the ones that are playing games. They don't need okay. these toys. Okay, they thank, just thank need you. They people tickets. Thanks a lot for the call. Well, I'm not sure how much this particular drone cost. I mean, I did look at some of the drone footage that was released by the Delta Police Department, and I'll tell you what. I mean, it looked like high def, like 4K. This is not a toy they were using there. Do you have any idea what that would cost, Kyla? I don't, but... I think the- 
camera equipment would probably be more expensive than the actual drone itself. The drone technology yeah. is, is readily available and, and quite inexpensive, but the camera yeah. equipment would be more expensive. It looks like a really good camera. Like they had crystal clear picture here. It was quite impressive, even from a far way off. Chris in Vancouver. Hi, Chris. Hey, Mike. My issue is privacy. What's the next thing that these guys are going to start using these drones for? And the only time that we find out these things that they're actually using them for is when somebody reports that they actually used it. So it seems like we don't find these things out until it's actually being used against us. And well, it's just, yeah. I think the police are getting lazy. They're, they're getting really lazy, and this is why a lot of things are occurring. Yeah, and well, I don't care how much, you know, people believe that the police don't do their job. It, it, like, it's just ridiculous, I think. Okay, okay, thanks for the call. Well, I thought it was interesting when the official from the Delta Police said they intend to use this drone again to go after speeders, but they will not be giving out any warning. They don't want to show their hand. They don't want to tip these speeders off that the drone will be flying over overhead and, and filming them. Um, I've seen, though, warning signs on the highway, Kyla, for aircraft patrolled in speed enforcement. I sometimes wonder if there's any planes up there watching me or if it's, or they just put the sign up and people slow down just because they see the sign. They put the sign up because people slow down. This is called announcement effect. If you tell somebody that enforcement is going to be happening, they're more likely to change their behavior yeah. in anticipation of that enforcement. Right. Don on the line in Surrey. Hi, Don. Good morning, Mike. I know out in, uh, in Delta between Ladner and Sawasan on Highway 17, when that road was first put in, they put up signs that say aircraft patrolled and they have the speed bars painted on the side of the road. So it's not like you're not being warned that you could be possibly looked at by an aircraft, and, well, let's face it, a drone is an aircraft, so it's not like yeah. uh, there's not warnings there. Okay, Don, thanks for that. Let's squeeze in one more call. Peter and Poco. Go ahead, Peter. you got 30 seconds here. Hi, good morning, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I agree with uh, most of the callers there that um, they, should, they should use, the RCMP should be able to use anything available um, to stop these morons from uh, speeding. Okay, you want to put up a sign warning that there's a drone watching him? Fine. Guy doing 160 clicks down the road is not going to see that sign anyway. <laughs> and using a spike belt is absolutely crazy, not for excessive speeding. I mean, okay. what does that lawyer think is going to happen to that driver that hits a spike belt doing 160? Okay, Peter, thanks for the call. Kyla, I know you'd love to respond for that, but we're out of time, so we'll just have to have you back. All right, sounds okay, good. Okay, Kyla, thanks for coming on. Kyla Lee there, actually. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. All right, welcome back to the show. Now let's talk about the outcome of the recent federal election. Uh, did that election result show the need in Canada for a proportional representation voting system? Now, if you take a look at some of the math here, it's really, really interesting. The Liberals 
Once again, they did not get the most votes. The conservatives got more votes than the liberals, but of course the liberals won the election. The liberals got 33% of the votes in Canada. They elected 155 MPs. The conservatives got 34.4% of the votes. They got more votes. They only elected 122 MPs. So the party that got the most votes finished second. How about break it down even more? The NDP... Well, they got about 16% of the popular vote. They only got eight, oh, 7% of the MPs in the House of Commons. The, uh, the Green Party of Canada, they received 6% of the votes. They only elected three MPs. Then, the Bloc Québécois, this is a fascinating one. The Bloc Québécois received 8% of the, the popular vote in Canada and elected 32 MPs with 8% of the vote. Then you've got Maxime Bernier in the People's Party of Canada, and they elected zero MPs. Listen to what Maxime Bernier had to say about that on election night. Over a million Canadians said they've had enough. Enough of this COVID hysteria. Enough of the flattening our rights and freedoms. Enough of the massive spending. If we had a proportional voting system, we would have elected about 20 MPs today. Whoa, 20 MPs for the People's Party of Canada with pro-rep. That's what Maxime Bernier said on election night. Okay, let's discuss now with a great panel here. We got both sides of it for you. Bill Thielman, president of West Star Communications. He led the anti-proportional representation campaign in the B.C. referendum on this issue a while back. Hi, Bill. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Gisela Ruckert, also on the line, president of Fair Vote Canada, B.C. They're calling for electoral reform. Hi, Gisela. Hello there. Okay, Gisela, let me go to you first. Fair Vote Canada, B.C. I know you, su- you support a proportional representation voting system, right? Do yes, you th- we certainly do. I, right. So do you think the last election, the last federal election, once again showed the need for that in Canada? Well, I think it's important to point out, firstly, that this election wouldn't actually have happened under a proportional representation system because it was a classic first-past-the-post play. We saw our prime minister, with a small increase in his polling numbers, gambling on winning a majority government more than two years early and in the middle of a pandemic. But in terms of the election results, my main takeaway is that we're seeing a more divided electorate. It's harder than it used to be to win all the power of a majority government with a minority of the vote. So as you know, five of the past seven elections have been minorities, and this is a particularly weak one. So voters don't want to give any political party all the power. They want them to work together. And unfortunately, that's where our outdated and adversarial voting system isn't working for us. It's encouraging this constant campaigning. We already saw on election night Aaron O'Toole talking about how ready he is to come back and fight the same battle. That's why we need a voting system that gives Canadians what they voted for and one that encourages parties to work together to find common ground instead of playing these political games. Okay, Bill Thielman, what do you say? Well, it's just not uh, really <laughs> remotely true to be the case. There's politics in every country around the world, whether they have proportional representation uh, or first-past-the-post or some other system. There's, you're not going to get rid of politics by changing the electoral system, number one. Number two, we don't need to change our electoral system. We have a perfectly good system in first-past-the-post, which we've had for a long, long time. And this country is one of the, uh, obviously, the country that's the, one of the envies of the world. People risk their lives to come to this country because they know it's a democracy, it's a functioning 
strong, stable democracy. And uh, the Fair Vote Canada people are, you know, constantly on this, but they keep losing. Every time you ask actual voters what's, what they should, uh, what electoral system they should have, they vote in favor of the one we have, uh, 61% in 2018, 61% in 2009. So they're kind of like hornets in a bottle, Mike. They make a lot of noise, but they don't go anywhere. Gisela, what do you say to that? <laughs> Well, it's an interesting perspective, Bill, but the facts tell a different story because of the uh, OECD countries, those are the most stable and successful countries in the world, only two of them actually had elections during the pandemic. So unnecessary and probably not very advisable from a health perspective elections. One of them was Canada and the other one was Israel, that favorite uh, outlier of proportional representation countries that you love to mention so often. So, Yes, Canada is a great country. We do have a very successful uh, system, and it has served us well. But as I said, we're seeing more and more unraveling of a political consensus, and the current system is ignoring that. In terms of, hmm. uh, in terms of not having made change yet, we see that 80% of voters want to see electoral reform. 80% of voters actually want to see a citizen's assembly as the path to get there because it encourages a more uh, deliberative and informed approach than these divisive yeah. and, and misinformation-filled referendums that we've seen in the past. Bill, let me ask you this, Bill. You've been a, a supporter of the NDP in the past. When mm -hmm. you take a look at the result of this most recent federal election, the NDP received 16% of the popular vote, but elected only 7% of the MPs in the House of Commons. What would you say to other NDP supporters who say that's not fair and we should move to a pro-rep system? We'd well, end up with more NDP MPs. I've, I've fought uh, against the NDP taking that position for a long time, Mike, as you know, and I think it's a foolish position. But you have to, the fundamental difference between what Giselle is, is saying, Fair Vote Canada is saying, and what I'm saying, and what the people of Canada seem to like, is we have 338 ridings, and there are 338 elections where each of those communities and geographic ridings decide who's the best person to send to Ottawa, and the party with the most seats forms the government. It is not a one giant election where everybody votes for everything across the country and the percentages decide how many seats and how many uh, and which parties are represented in parliament and the local accountability the responsibility of, of a local representative to their local riding where they have to uh, go to church and go to school and go to work and meet people at the corner store is basically the cornerstone of a first past the post okay. system whereas uh, what what fair vote canada wants a mixed member proportional system which lost again in 2018 61% uh, those uh, that well, up to 40% of the seats are decided by the party from a list and you don't Bill, get to choose who's on the list you don't get to choose yes, the party yeah, the way, let me just finish yeah. the party chooses who's on the list and that's the way it works even if they don't win a single riding in the whole country not one geographic riding they still send a, a, a certain percentage of the vote popular vote okay. to, to the parliament and i don't G agree with that Gisela. Bill. Bill, I know that fear-mongering and false information worked really well for you in the past referendums, but I need to push back on that because the party lists argument that you keep bringing up has actually not been part of our recommendations for quite some time, even though you still got people to believe that during the last election. Every Canadian Assembly and Citizens Assembly that ever has looked at electoral reform has recommended that we switch to proportional representation and unless Canadians want party lists, and I don't think they do, then they aren't going to be getting them. Because what we're recommending is a citizen-led process that is 
made in Canada by Canadians for Canadians. And in fact, all of the proportional representation systems recommended by Fair Vote Canada would maintain local representation. They would allow voters to elect every politician by name, not by party, and provide voters with greater choice, even often among several candidates from the same party. So it would be great if you would actually stick to the facts, Bill. We need to know that when we cast a ballot, it counts. That when we vote, it matters. So I'm proposing we make every vote count. We are committed to ensuring that the 2015 election will be the last federal election using first-past-the-post. Okay, that was Justin Trudeau there uh, promising basically proportional representation back in 2015. Of course, it never happened. And I suspect it probably won't happen under a Trudeau government here. We continue to talk about electoral reform with my guest Bill Thielman and Gisela Rucker. Gisela, that's a famous clip there of Trudeau promising electoral reform and never happened. I mean, why do you think he backed away from that? Well, I think for the same reason that every other politician who has been elected on that promise in the last 100 years, and yes, it has been 100 years we've been promised electoral reform, um, they've all backed away because they realize that their party won't be able to win a majority government and that under our Canadian system is 100% of the power with a minority of the vote anymore. Politicians would actually have to work harder and they would have to work together with other parties. They'd have to share power. So why would he put that in? Why, who wants to share power? That's no fun. Right. But in most countries, and that's 90 countries around the world, those are the ones using proportional representation. It's the vast majority of, of democratic countries in the world. Typically, two or three parties work together, which represent a true majority of voters, and they end up cooperating to produce legislation that doesn't get reversed every time a new government is elected what so you get greater long-term policy stability and you have steady progress on big issues like climate change Gisela, what do you say to the argument i want to get bill's thoughts on this too that if canada was to move to a proportional representation system you open the door to extreme fringe parties getting a foothold sure. in the house of commons like for example the People's Party, Maxime Bernier, you heard that clip of him saying, like, yeah. wow, if we had pro-rep, we would have elected 20 MPs. Your thoughts? Well, a couple of things, actually. Um, first of all, that number is based on a pure proportional system, which has never been recommended for Canada. So our simulations using actual systems, which have been recommended, would be somewhere in the range of 6 to 10 MPs. But regardless, ignoring voices that disagree with you doesn't make them go away. It just makes them angrier. And I think the PPC voters are part of a larger group of unrepresented voters. And really, they're just a drop in the bucket. First past the post silences voters on a much larger scale all across the country. I think we should stop fretting about this small party that might get a handful of seats without any power in government and talk about what first past the post is doing to the country on a larger scale. What is the impact of entire provinces being literally shut out of government for six years? What impact does it have when young people don't want to vote because they know their votes won't matter? Gerald Butts finally said it out loud on Twitter last week. He said, we don't count votes, we count seats. The only voters that matter at election time are those that live in swing ridings, which is just a tiny percentage of Canadians every time. 
Bill Tillman. Well, it's just so much <laughs> talk about misinformation. Look, if you call it proportional, then Maxime Bernier would be going to Parliament with about 17 seats. That's about roughly hit the percentage of popular and what's wrong? And what's wrong with that? I don't want to have people with his extremist, anti-vax, anti-mask views in our, our most hallowed hall of, of democracy, Can the I Parliament. And, and I don't want them in there. And they can't win a single geographic riding. Even Maxime Bernier, the great leader, can't win his riding of both in Quebec. And yeah, but they still the got... We keep the, the, the extremists no. out of the parliament. You're right, but you've still disenfranchised over a million Canadians that voted no, for his party. No, I haven't disenfranchised them. Well, like they, they still Bill. get... They, I, let me I finish. That, let, let, uh, let me finish. You're talking about... Hang on, hang on, guys. A long time. Let me finish, please. I give you your time without interrupting it. There is uh, no way that Canadian ridings would elect extremists with that kind of a low percentage of vote. But if you give them proportional representation, you'll have a continual stream of extremists of all sorts in our legislatures and parliaments. And that's what Canadians have voted against over and over. They don't want to okay. see that. Okay, Gisela, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, Bill, if you want to talk about extremists, let's talk about Donald Trump. There's someone who took over a mainstream party a and became president. System. I'd like to finish. It's my Not turn a parliamentary right system. became one of the most powerful countries in the world, a president, which also happens to use first-past-the-post. So Maxime Bernier, which, who is in our country, that's your point, your objection there, and you're labeling him an extremist, he came within 1.9% of becoming the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. We could have had a Prime Minister Bernier under first-past-the-post. Under mm. proportional representation, that's the People's Party might win a few seats. Bill, I'm still speaking here, but there is no danger of the People's Party gaining any real power because other parties would refuse to cooperate with them. That's the example that we see around the world. Bill Zielman. Donald Trump wasn't elected under a parliamentary system, number one. He did not have the most seats, and that made him the, prime, the president. That's not their system. It's a presidential system. Number two, if you have a small number of seats and you have parties that are close, then the, those 17 PPP seats could decide who the prime minister is, much more so. If Maxime Bernier had won the conservative leadership, they would have been decimated in the next election. It would have been a disaster, and they would have been long gone. Well, we could have had a prime minister Bernier, though. That's the whole point oh, No, here. he First couldn't have possibly I'm, won. I'm He's speaking, too extreme. Bill. Bill, I'm speaking. Uh, prime Minister Bernier would have been part of a big tent party, and we might not have seen those radical uh, views that he holds. Whereas if we put him in a proportional system, people can see the party for what it is and choose to support it or not. We don't have this cloaking of ulterior agendas that we have in First Past the Post. And that's how these people come to power. No, that's... that's Kelly that's, Leach came up with the, uh, what was the hotline called? The... Uh, something cultural practices hotline, yeah, which right. and, and that worked well for them. Look, okay, let me let me let me let me right now. Ten percent of the vote went to a neo-Nazi party, the Alternative for Deutschland party, and now they have legitimacy and a voice in their in their parliament. Okay, and they I'm going to exactly the same as they were last time, Bill. They okay, Giza, we got we have. I'm going to give Giza. I'm going to give you thirty seconds to wrap up. Okay, go ahead. Well, I think that it's time that we recognize that we're on a path here. Either we can go towards more polarization or we can choose to go for more co cooperation. So Canadians want to see leaders show integrity. We want to see them acknowledge their conflict of interest. And we want them to step aside to let citizens okay. lead on defining a process towards a fairer electoral system. Bill, Bill Tiemann, you've got 20 seconds here. Go ahead. Referendum after referendum, the voters of British Columbia rejected proportional representation 61% in 2009, 61% last time. Ontario rejected it, PEI rejected it. Thank Every you. time it goes to voters, they say no thanks. So. Thank
All right, welcome back to the show. That's a little taste there of Greyhawk. They're a heavy metal band from Seattle. And let's get into the incredible story now of their bass player, Darren Wall. Darren is recovering right now from a gunshot wound he received after one of their recent gigs. Now, I've got Darren standing by to tell the story. But first, have a listen to this report now from KTVB News in Boise, Idaho. Good evening. We begin the news at 6 tonight with the heroic actions of a man by the name of Darren Wall. He's a bass player for a heavy metal band out of Seattle that was performing over the weekend at The Shredder, a popular music venue south of downtown Boise. Wall took a bullet to the leg while stopping a man who had a gun. The suspect, 26-year-old Ethan Bird, faces multiple charges, including aggravated battery and use of a deadly weapon. Okay, that's incredible. Darren Wall joins me now, the bass player for Greyhawk. Hey, Darren. Hey, how you doing, man? Darren, I'm doing great. It's awesome to have you on here. I think you're a true hero here for what happened. And and just I just want to point out to the listeners, you're originally from Vancouver, right? That is correct. I am a Vancouver guy, born and raised. I okay, lived okay. most of my life there. I only recently came to Seattle in the last few years. Okay, that is awesome, Darren. All right, man, you got to tell me what happened at this gig in Boise, Idaho. So you ended up getting shot in the leg. How did this happen? Um, I, it's it's still almost just surreal to me. I, it, it just kind of developed so quickly that um, it, it still makes my head spin a little bit. But um, basically, the show was over. So I think one thing that's important to point out is this gentleman was not at the show. Um, he was not a member of the Boise metal community, the music scene, the venue or anything. Um, we were done the gig. We were finishing loading out the last pieces of gear, um, out the back. The bar was closed. Front door was locked. Um, so this guy shows up in the parking lot and, um, I was hanging around back on this little patio area with a few people just talking and, uh, meeting some new people from Boise cause we'd never played there before. And somebody came up to me and said, Hey, Darren, there's a guy outside the parking lot. He's being pretty belligerent. We've got to keep an eye on him. And, you know, I'm a pretty large guy. I'm a power lifter. I'm about 6'2", 270 pounds. So I get called on to deal with, uh, you know, people who are intoxicated <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah. And usually when you deal with people who are intoxicated, they're full of hot air. You know, the blah, blah, blah. It's all loud. It's all smoke and mirrors and nothing's going to come of it. This guy was a little different right away. I mean, he was yeah. very cold. He was pretty arrogant and my, I, I was alerted to this, this as being something a little different really quick. So they were, he was confronted by some people as he was trying to force his way into the back of the venue. Um, they prevented him from coming in. He went back towards his car. And as he's going towards his car, he made like a finger gun gesture of the crowd. And he kind of pretended oh. to pop off some rounds. Right. So oh. now I'm getting, I don't think, I don't know if anyone saw it, but me, but I'm now I'm really concerned. So he gets in his car. I'm hoping he'll drive away. He didn't drive away. He gets out of his car, and now he's got a backpack on. And now I'm really concerned. So I said to the person next to me, I said, call the police right now. I don't know if they called the police or not, but I, I told him to call the police, and I got up, and I went outside to confront this guy. And at this point, you know, I relegated myself to the fact that I'm probably going to get shot because when you're confronting someone who has a firearm, you know, all this stuff you see on TV and et cetera, about disarming people with a weapon and tearing it out of their hands and all this stuff is, yeah. is kind of a bunch of gobbledygook, really. I mean, it, it takes five pounds of pressure to pull a trigger. It's not, it's not hard to shoot somebody. So anyway, I moved, I moved close to the situation. This dude 
was still being confronted by some people who were trying to keep him out of the venue. It escalated. There was a bit of pushing and shoving, and that's when the gun came out. When I saw the gun, I jumped in the middle, and I moved between him and the crowd, and I kicked him as hard as I could in the inside of his, uh, his uh, right leg to throw him off balance, and I pushed him back away from the crowd. And as I pushed him back, he pulled the trigger, and he got me once in the upper part of my left leg. So at this Man. point, the police are on the police are on scene real quick. Um, so he shot. So he shot me. I should back up a bit. He shot me. I went down. Um, I got right back up. I called him uh, an expletive I will not repeat on your radio show. Um, <laughs> and he uh, he at this at this point he he ran. Uh, my guitar wow. player. She came up and grabbed me right away and said, stop going after him. You're shot, you idiot. <laughs> and I said, I said something like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, wow. so she put, she put me in the back of a vehicle that was nearby and took her jacket off and tied it around my leg like a tourniquet. And the police were on scene in about 30 seconds because they were already out looking for this guy because he was driving around downtown Boise waving his gun at people. And wow. they were out looking for him. They unfortunately were just about 40 feet in the wrong location. Darren, that uh, so. that is incredible, man. Like you saved the lives potentially of a lot of people here, and I think you are a true hero. Now, is it true that the, the bullet is still in your leg? Is that right? The bullet is still there. Um, basically, where I got real lucky and with, with where it landed. So, um, it's about less than half an inch from my femoral artery. Which, if he'd have got Ooh. me in the femoral artery, I probably would have bled out in the parking lot. Um, and so the, the the surgeon's opinion is that it's safer to leave it in there than it is to go in and extract it because they could hit a bunch of the vital stuff that it, the bullet missed when it went in. So it, it's being left there. And the real scary part is how much what they found in his backpack after the shooting occurred. He had an extra pistol and he had about 60 to 80 rounds worth of loaded magazines in his oh. bag. So he was out to do some damage. Oh, man. Darren, that's amazing. You were a true hero here for taking that action and taking this guy down, taking a bullet, too. So tell me real quick, and sadly, in the three minutes we got left here, tell me how Dave Grohl, the famous rocker from the Foo Fighters there in Seattle, how did he got, how he got involved here? Well, I went on a radio show, um, and I basically got asked how I'm going to, if I have any shows coming up, I said, yeah. They said, how are you going to play it? And I said, well, I'm going to have to play it sitting down. And I jokingly said, maybe Dave Grohl could lend me that throne he used when he broke his leg a couple of years ago. Well, <laughs> people started tweeting it. Um, it eventually got to Dee Snyder from Twist's sister who tweeted it at the Foo Fighters. Their management got a hold of me, asked for my story. I gave them the news story. And then 20, about 20 more minutes later, Dave Grohl called me personally from the MTV wow. BMA Awards and agreed to ship that throne up to me at his expense. So he, he did that, and I played my show last Sunday sitting on his throne, which was quite an honor. Oh, man, yeah, and that's an awesome-looking throne. It's it's real badass <laughs> rock-and-roll-looking throne because he broke his leg, and he was using it while he recovered, right? Yes, and Axl yeah. Rose used it uh, for oh. Axl Rose used it for a while, too, when he broke his foot. You're in some pretty good company there. Yeah, I mean, it's, I always <laughs> joke about one of these things is not quite like the other in the situation, <laughs> but it is... It is quite an honor to use something that both those guys have, for sure, because they're both huge rock stars and they're amazing. Darren, that's amazing. Like, What's the prognosis for your recovery here now? Well, I'm off crutches. Um, I'm walking around with a cane that I'm not putting much weight on anymore, so I'm actually way ahead of schedule from what the doctors thought uh, I would be. I mean, all those hours in the gym, I think, are paying off because my muscles are recovering pretty quick. Um, as to whether it's going to be a full 100% recovery, that remains to be seen. But right now, you know, things are looking pretty good.
And the bullet is still in the leg. Do you think is the bullet going to be there forever? Do you think? Yes, sir. Oh uh, I can man! Confirm, I, I can confirm it sets off metal detectors too because I went to the Seahawks game a couple <laughs> weeks ago and I blew off the metal detector when I went through it. So uh, that it, is that a, is very heavy metal. You've got that bullet in your leg. Wow, it's literally, literally heavy metal. Um, Darren, <laughs> yes, I congratulate you. You are a true hero, and it's awesome to have a guy from Vancouver uh, do that. And uh, when do you uh, you guys play Vancouver a lot? When do you think you might be getting back up here to play a gig? We do. We do. We played Vancouver several times. I mean, I played in the Vancouver metal scene for like 15 years or so, and I got lots of friends and lots of love for that scene back home. So we uh, we do. We want to get back up there. It's just you know, I think we're waiting to, for the border situation to be yeah. a little more clear, for the public health situation to be a little more clear, to make it a little easier on everyone. Darren, good luck with your recovery, and I tip my hat to you. You're a real hero. Thanks for coming on to tell the story today. Thank you, sir. I, I used to listen to the, the CKNW all the time when I lived back home, so it's an honor for me, all too. All right. That's what we like to hear. Thank you, Darren. That is Darren Wall, the bass player for Greyhawk.